Hey, cashiers. We Have the Receipts podcast is coming at you live from Netflix is a Joke Fest in Los Angeles. Chris, are you kidding? No, Netflix is a joke, Courtney, but this is not one of them. Our listeners in LA have the chance to join us for a live recording of our podcast, We Have the Receipts, hosted by me, Chris Burns. And me, Courtney Revolution. Join us and a few surprise guests from your favorite Netflix reality shows on Saturday, May 4th at 1 p.m. at a secret location in Hollywood. To be announced. Get your tickets for the We Have the Receipts live show at todoom.com slash W-H-T-R. That's todoom, T-U-D-U-M dot com slash W-H-T-R. Tickets are limited. If you can't make it to the show, we still want to hear your beautiful voice. Leave us a message at speakpipe.com slash We Have the Receipts. You may even hear your own voice on the show. Grab a ticket at todoom.com slash W-H-T-R. And we'll see you on May 4th in Los Angeles. Bye, cashiers. Welcome to You Can't Make This Up, a companion podcast for Netflix original true crime stories. I'm Rebecca Lavoy, your host. Each episode, we take a close-up look at a true crime documentary or series, and I talk to the people who made them, digging deep into the backstories and getting answers to questions raised by what we just watched. On the show this week, the documentary, American Murder, The Family Next Door. In 2018, Shanann Watts and her two young daughters went missing in Frederick, Colorado. Three days later, their bodies were discovered and details of their deaths made headlines worldwide. It became clear that Shanann's husband, Chris, wasn't the man he appeared to be. Using raw first-hand footage, the film examines their disappearance and the terrible events that followed. I'll be talking with Jenny Popowell, the film's director. Because of the COVID-19 pandemic, our guest was recorded in her home and not in a studio, and we appreciate your understanding. My name's Nicole, and I'm calling because I'm concerned about a friend of mine. I dropped her off at her house at 2 in the morning last night, and I haven't been able to get a hold of her this morning. I've gone to her house, and her car's there. She won't answer phone calls. She won't answer text messages. What's her name? Shanann Watts. Hey guys, my name is Shanann. I just want you to know a little bit of my story. I went through one of the darkest times of my life, and then I met Chris. And he's the best thing that has ever happened to me. Jenny, thanks so much for joining me. I'm really interested to talk to you about this documentary. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So you have been making films for about a decade and a half now, but this is your first true crime documentary. I'm curious about what it was about this story that drew you into this genre. Um, the reason I was drawn to this story was because as a filmmaker, you always tell people's stories. And I came across this crime in a British newspaper and immediately went to her social media because it mentioned that she had an online profile and there was just something about her first few videos that I came across where she was doing testimonials you know she's talking to the camera um, she's talking about her life that I was immediately taken by her and you felt like you knew her and I think that's what a lot of people have said when they've watched these videos they feel like they know Shanann they know the girls later I found YouTube clips obviously and found the police footage and body cams um, and started to realize just how much was captured on camera and started to discuss it with um, with friends here, saying it felt like there was enough content 
um, to do an archive only documentary about her story. But at that point, there was no there was no conclusion. I, I didn't feel that there was a an answer or a conclusion in any way to what had happened. And in February, obviously, they went and recorded a interview with him. I don't think he knew he was being recorded, actually, it's a secret, secret recording, um, where he confesses properly. He, te- he's, he basically clears Shanann's name and admits that it was him. And from that moment on, I thought, it's all been captured. There's everything on camera. There's body cam, there's CCTV. She's doing her own testimony and diaries. There's text messages. Why do we need to do an interview and have someone recollect what happened on that day? Why do I need someone to tell me about the type mm. of person Shanann was? Shanann can tell me who she is. People can talk about this situation as um, outsiders or I can go straight to Shanann and she can tell me about herself. Her text messages are so open. She's an open book. She's she's telling you know, she's telling the truth. She has no reason to lie. She's reaching out for help. So I knew that within these hours and hours of uh, interrogation tapes was Mm. a huge amount of lying. Um, It was mainly lies. And actually the truth was with the victim. So I just felt that this was going to be a unique situation and, and a, a documentary of our time. You couldn't, you couldn't make this a few years ago. This is just, you know, our lives are on camera and documented in a way digitally that they haven't been before. I do want to talk to you about the craft of this documentary. I've never seen anything like it before. I mean, there are certainly, you know, many, many, many true crime documentaries that kind of, you know, present the the timeline and the facts of a case and, and try to capture somewhat of a real-time investigative feel Yours really stands out. This is a uh, salacious American crime that was splashed all over the media, as you touch on in the film. And and we'll talk a little bit about some of those, you know, the ways that it was covered and the missteps there. I want to know how you made this, because it does have a a very, very present tense, real time feel. It has an urgency to it. I feel like I am part of the investigation. It's unfolding in front of me. How did you do that? Like, how did you get all of this material and how are you thinking about it as you put it together? Um, Well, that's that's exactly the the approach that I wanted. I wanted to feel real time because archive usually is a past tense medium you know that you are telling the story of the 60s or a jubilee or you know any event in history and you know you actually treat your archive as this historic moment and people will do graphic effects to it and you know mess it up the pictures a little bit to make it feel old and we want to it's a flash and a memory of time but I felt because we were in the moment and because it was recorded live and there was just a wealth of footage that that was going to be unique to this film, that I wanted us to stay in the moment. And if we aren't going to be told in the past tense what happened, then we're going to be there in the moment watching it unfold. And that was important. There there was a lot of um, time spent deciding which clip to use when and and how to use the news reports. Um, That and, you know, just how you pieced it together was really important to keep that the present tense. And then Shanann, I wanted her to be the second timeline. Um, But again, as soon as we flash back to her, like you would in a film, you you can see multiple timelines Mm. in a movie. I wanted to, again, be in the moment with her. I didn't want her to be a memory. I wanted you to be with her in the moment. She becomes so much more tangible um, and you're so much more invested in her if you feel like you're with her and not um, a memory of her. How did you get all the body cam footage? I mean, I'm curious. That's the part to me that was so fascinating was to sort of be there with the police. I think interrogation footage is something we're a little bit more used to seeing. Um, but the body cam footage, them, you know, talking to neighbors, walking into the Watts home, you know, being there with Shanann's friend who, you know, first called the, the police and really on the scene. Where did that footage come from? 
that's from the Frederick Police Department. Mm. They are they were trialing it. Everybody is wearing, and have been for a year there at the time in 2018. They had been trialing body cams, so a huge amount of their police force were wearing these cameras and were turning them on for everything, for you know traffic stops to phone calls, and it was their evidence then going forward in cases. But obviously, for them in that department, this was the biggest case that they'd ever dealt with, and it obviously with them disinformation went everywhere but um as part of their transparency these are readily available tapes once once Mm. the court case and the sentencing is over um they released they redacted certain information to keep um you know people's details private but anything that was factually important and historically important was part of that body of evidence now uh, i'm a true crime author i've written several true crime books and i know that one of the most difficult part sometimes of telling stories like this, especially when you want to make it a victim-centered story, is building trust with the victim's family and friends. I know that that was important to you. Can you talk about how that went? How did you get to know Shanann's family? How, how did they feel about the process of you making this film? Yeah, I think with any film that you make, trust as a filmmaker is so important and you can't go back on your word. If you say, this is what I'm going to do, you have to do that. I think as a filmmaker, that's your responsibility. You have to earn that trust. And then you have a catalogue of past films that um, you have to show that you've done that. That's your... um, It's their guarantee Mm. that you are an honest and truthful person. And not everybody in the industry is. And, you know, the reputation is that you can't trust the media. But you have to stand firm and know that ultimately, if you've done right by every contributor you've ever filmed with in the past, then if you are ever able to make contact with somebody for a new film, then that's evident. You know, they they can see that that's been written about. And if they check out your past films, they can see that you've been positively spoken about by by people you filmed in the past. And Mm. that goes a long way. So my experience has been has always been um, an access documentary filmmaker. So I'm always trying to get access to communities or individuals that otherwise might normally say no. But after Shanann's disappearance, I mean, her family was really harassed and her reputation was really kind of made fodder for a lot of really irresponsible and kind of ugly social media debate and criticism. Can you just talk a little bit about that aspect of the story? I mean, they... Um, you know, there, there was this sort of this idea out there that somehow she was, you know, demanding. She was bossy. She was difficult. You know, no wonder, you know, something would have happened to her. You know, Chris was pushed. Can you just talk about that? Because I found that part extremely painful uh, to think about, to watch, and also to watch her family's reaction to it. Yeah, I think um, Shanann's story is representative of any woman um, who's mm. a victim of violent crime. So uh, we're just used to seeing this. You know, if a um, female victim has been trafficked or abused or raped, that people start to question her actions. How much was she drinking? What was she wearing? How did she act to her perpetrator that triggered him to act this way? And I just think it's, you know, the misogyny and the fabric of our society that we have to be challenging and not looking and dissecting women's behaviour to see about how they might bring on an attack on themselves. Um, and I saw that in I I knew as a surface level I knew that that was going on I could see it very early on in comments as soon as you're looking at videos that people were saying well she was bossy or um, you know other derogatory comments about her as if they were somehow going to solve the crime and the reason that this wonderful man snapped and I just felt that I, I couldn't believe that he's committed the most 
appalling, horrendous. There is no word to explain what he's done. Yeah. Um, and it, his, you know, there's so much evidence. He's admitted it. Um, all she's done is love her family. And yet still we're looking to her to see you know, to, for answers as to how, why did she cause this? Why, what did she do to cause this man mm. to snap? I just have to wonder if she even wanted Bella and Cece. Her parent-raising ideas were disturbing. The one that I would label the narcissist is Shanann. I think she drove him to lose his shit. Oh my God, she could not drive him to lose his shit. She did, she did. She did, Laura, she did. She drove him insane. Come on, why are you victim blaming? She was a bitch. And I, I was quite uncomfortable with just how much reporting there has been on what a great guy Chris was. Mm. And you just don't see that. If a, um, There's been cases where women have, you know, killed their children. I think you'd be very hard pushed to find a report about how kind she was or, you know, what a lovely mother she'd been previously right, and always right. cooked at bake sales and, you know, helped out in the church. They, they wouldn't, she would have, no character uh, positivity would have been accredited to her after such an incident and it and it isn't and the same for her husband there was a I think her name's Susan Smith Sarah Smith yes Susan um, Smith yeah Susan Smith um killed her two children uh she was having an affair mm. and she went on on national television and asked for their safe return and when it was discovered that it was in fact her who'd killed her children and she was having an affair and her husband was obviously left devastated there's no reports about what a wonderful woman she is mm. or what a kind mother she's been or what did this husband do to drive her into the arms of another man or what he must have done something to cause her to snap you know he is reported as a grieving husband and she is reported as a woman who has committed a callous act and that's it mm. and that that same reporting standard has not been um given to the Watts murders and I just think that's that is happening all the time and mm. that's what Shanann's story represents when he blames her um Obviously, that's a technique that the that they do to get that confession, and that he he just follows. He walks blindly into that when they offer maybe Shenan did something, but actually, it's kind of a metaphor for what we do anyway in society. Whether he'd done that or not, eventually people would have started to do the same. So, when it comes to that kind of victim blaming, what do you think the dangers are there? Um, I think it's when you have a derogatory opinion of a female victim, that is the real problem. If it's unchallenged or if it's fueled, then it's going to have a further damaging effect. You can't have men thinking that it's it's okay that if the woman was bossy, then maybe that's why he killed her. Because if you validate that and you allow those those thoughts to seep into everyone's subconscious, then what happens when other people start to have those thoughts? You know, Are their actions going to be justified? Are they going to follow them through? You have to really challenge that and not uh, leave it out there for it to like permeate and become part of our thinking. That's right. That's right. I mean, certainly women who are involved in any aspect in these stories, uh, the view of them is usually sexist, uh, ranges to misogynistic. And I, I do think you're absolutely right on in that point. That brings me to Chris. I mean, I think that in a lot of stories like this and a lot of crimes like this, Often what is revealed in the aftermath when it turns out, you know, that it was the husband or the partner is some sort of history or whether documented or secret of sort of overt abuse. This is a slightly different pathology here. Chris, you know, even in his communications with Shanann that we see via text, isn't on his face, you know, uh, mean, uh, abusive, calculating, but there is 
a distance that certainly she is responding to. All of her communications to him that we see in the film are very much about just trying to connect, trying to cross some sort of cold gulf. Can you just talk a little bit about what you know about that dynamic uh, before the crime was committed in their relationship? I think Chris is very passive. I think he's very shy. I think people that have spoken about him in the past have said he kept to himself. But um, I also think that he didn't talk about his feelings. Shanann writes in a text message that he's only good at writing. She's asked Mm. him to write this letter in reply to her letter because she knows he doesn't talk about his feelings. He only writes them down. And I think that's the issue there. If we want to understand better the situation, it, it was what was going on with Chris. It's what's going on in his mind and how he's reacting to situations, not because he's triggered by them, because these are normal, everyday situations that are happening around him, um, but rather it, it's how, how he processes information. It's If he doesn't reach out and talk to friends or his dad or anyone like that when he's going through a stressful time or his wife, he's, he's, he's internalising everything and then this is how he's acted out. No one can explain why he's acted out in this way, but because he doesn't talk to anyone or process these emotions, it's very hard to understand him. I don't want to delve too much into areas that would seem like I'm trying to, you know, psychoanalyze Chris or, you know, excuse him in any way. But one of the things that struck me was that he had been a quiet, sort of passive, shy, overweight guy. And that recently, up until the timeline of these murders, he sort of had embarked on this like self-improvement journey and, and seemed to have gained a lot of at least superficial confidence. He was working out constantly. Shanann does talk about that. Uh, We see her texting with her friend about one of the distances she feels is that instead of talking, he just wants to go lift weights. That seems to be one way that he sort of changed a little bit in his persona in the time leading up to these murders. What I tried to do with the film is actually make it completely relatable until it's unrelatable. Mm. So the details that you learn in the film up until the murder is actually not related at all to the crime. I'm not trying to say that anything that happened there is related to crime. I'm actually saying these are signs of an affair. Mm. So it's meant to be relatable for someone watching that who has helped a friend through an affair or has been uh, uh, on the other side of that and has seen that the distance with their partner, they stop talking to you, they separate from you and they're hard to reach out to. They may not start improving their appearance. Um, They're hard to get hold of. He was following a lot of patterns of actually an affair. So this was stuff he knew was happening. We knew he was being unfaithful. So what we were actually pointing out in the film was the evidence of infidelity um, and the signs that are there. And, And so much of the story is actually focused on a disintegrating marriage rather than the lead up to a a murder and Mm -hmm. it just happens that this is where Chris takes it but um, yeah really the focus is how how, and it can come undone so quickly right they were they were happy I I have heard from so many sources a lot of research done here but their own text messages she she was reaching out for help and she wasn't holding back she's offering her own faults she's offering every detail of their life and that it is left field and that he's not been like this before so for all intents purposes they had a and she spots the moment he stopped sleeping with her you know this has been on all accounts in all areas a healthy relationship or a loving relationship and it worked for them the dynamic was different you know she's the stronger personality and seemed to you know, um, organize events, what they were eating, what they were doing, what they were doing at the weekend. But that's not uncommon, Jenny. That's that's like such a common, that's what kept striking me is that this relationship seemed so typical in so many ways. I mean, 
I don't know a couple who makes plans where it's not the wife. <laughs> you know, I don't mean to be like heteronormative here, but in male and female couples, typically uh, the woman does sort of arrange what their life looks like, you know, uh, organizes the household duties. And I mean, this is not atypical. Even this big conflict they had over her relationship with his parents, very, very typical, right? Not pointing to murder. No, exactly. So the idea is that everything seems so normal. So we're looking for surely something's going to happen here that's not and we never find it. As the DA says, right, at sentencing, if you were this unhappy, just get a divorce. There's no fingers to be blamed at Shanann. She she couldn't have acted any differently. She's had a falling out. We're allowed to do that. She's uh, not been happy for a period of time. She offers in her final letter to fix it. Whatever he wants, she'll make it work. She feels aggrieved by the situation, but she knows that she doesn't want her children to be without a grandparent. She knows it's hurting Chris for him to be not connected any longer to his parents. So th- there was nothing left other than the infidelity um, between them as, as any kind of wedge or anything that would have caused him to act out like this. And infidelity also, I mean, I, I don't want to say that, you know, all marriages have the situation, obviously, also not uncommon. It's not uncommon for a partner to stray. It's not uncommon for somebody to have an affair. What is uncommon to me is Shanann's, you know, she really does seem very interested in not blaming him and not making him the enemy. And I do, you've mentioned it a couple times. I would love for you to talk a little bit more about that letter. I hadn't heard about this letter before. I'd read a lot about this case. Can you just talk about that, how you came in possession of it and and just why the letter is so important? The letter is actually something that I found on her phone when um, her family allowed me to download the content for the film. Um, I'd seen in the discovery, the first page, it's a, it's a poor copy of the letter and tried to make out what that what that said. But that turned out to be the first page of a first draft because it's all obviously on her phone. It's time stamped and you can see when she's, she's writing things and when she's taking the photos. And she wrote a two-page A4 letter uh, and took a photo of it. And an hour later, she'd made a few amends and tweaked things, left details out and then taken another one. This was obviously the final draft. She took photos of her handwritten letter. Is that that's, that's yeah. right? Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So I believe I couldn't see it in the text messages, but I believe she then sent this to a friend to see if she was being too harsh or did this sound right or how did they receive it? Um, and thank goodness she did, because obviously the letter wasn't found in the house. Um, he took this out and destroyed it. And there was no evidence of what this letter said. So we've only ever seen the first page of the first draft in the discovery. Um, that one of the tweaks, interestingly, that she took out when she said she says in the first letter, she doesn't know if something or someone has come between them. And she's amended that and she changes it to something. She removes someone. Mm. So it's almost like she doesn't want to ask him again because she's already had this argument with him that there could be someone else because he's already told her there's no one else. So even though that's playing on her mind, she's decided not to upset him again by asking again. One thing that really struck me about Shanann was, you know, despite having these troubles in her marriage, really feeling dissatisfied with the amount that Chris was giving to her, and um, she continued to be a very independent and strong person. She, you know, went to visit family. She went on this, you know, work trip, which was probably like the MLM conference, right, where all the Mm -hmm. sales folks get together. She didn't curtail her own journey uh, because of these marital problems. And and that was really something that struck me because 
that also felt atypical of a story like this. It really, to me, showed that she did not feel in in personal peril. Like she wasn't really changing her own life's course because of some, you know, suspected huge rift coming her way or big change coming her way, right? Like she thought things were going to be okay. Not for a second does she think that her or her children's life were in any danger or that there was going to be any issue. I think she thought things were on the mend or that they could work through it or they've always worked through it. She's pregnant with his child. I think she thought they were having a rocky patch um, Mm. and that it was in a a time where they really needed to focus on their relationship. She bought a trip for them to go away for the weekend. She spoke to one of her friends who was down to babysit the girls for that time so they could go away no work no children and just work on it and she was so desperate to make it work and but she was texting you know friends saying how do I what if he doesn't love me anymore how and it that those were the relatable stories what what happens when one of you realizes that the person you're so in love with might not love you anymore Hmm. I think this is it was a, a tragic love story that turned into what became a horror story so it was trying to it's making a film about her but it's enabling her to tell her story. So mm. the things that you focus on are what were important to her at the time. What she was messaging about was um, the problem she was having with her in-laws and how that was causing a problem between her. She thought this was the problem between her and Chris. Right. It just blindsided her. It happened at the exact moment that the infidelity was occurring. So it, it was just what, what was going on in, in the lead up to her. What did she know? What was she aware of? How did she feel about it? That's her story. This was what was documented and left with it, you know, digitally within her phone. So while other people over the next 10, 15, 20, 30 years are going to be talking about this case, everyone will bring their opinion to it and everyone will describe their relationship or have have an opinion on it. And I felt like she'd left that. She'd left her opinion on their relationship. And it was, you know, my responsibility to give her that space to tell her story before other people tell it for her. Well, Chris Watts is a particular kind of killer. Um, He didn't show any outward signs of being violent. This was not, you know, by all accounts, a a relationship where there was domestic abuse. She did have independence. Um, There was an emotional rift between the two of them. Yet he falls into a very particular uh, category of killer. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, he uh, they're classed as family annihilators. So there was no domestic abuse, you're correct, that people cite he'd never raised his voice to her, never mind his fists. Um, they, he, he's very placid throughout their entire relationship. But to kill your wife and then to kill your children um, is a certain type of murderer. I think the American term is family annihilator. Yes, it is. They're studied, and actually Chris fits that profile, Um the studies that have been there's a case here in the UK, a man who studied um, family annihilations over the last hundred years, and actually they've they've been divided into lots of different groups of personality types, and they do it for different reasons. Each time it happens, people think it's a one-off moment and it's shocking, and how could this ever happen? But it's like history keeps repeating itself. They happen, and they're happening even more during lockdown because people are locked up with their abusers. But um, it's not about what the women or the children have done. It's about the men and how they see themselves. And it's actually completely tied up with toxic masculinity and not with women's behavior. The study matches Chris's profile so much. They statistically have said that family annihilators are most likely white men in their 30s and they're most likely to commit the crime on a Sunday in August. So Chris's, you know, textbook. That's really astonishing. I'm curious about in your in your research into this, you know, I this is grim, but the thing I always think about when I hear about these cases is, you know, you sort of 
obviously not excuse, but at least can relate to the pathology of, I want to be in a different relationship, so let me mm-hmm. get this other relationship out of the way in this, you know, violent, awful way. But that is, an, at least you can draw a direct line there. The thing that is almost impossible to explain is the choice to kill the children. I mean, mm-hmm. it's we know the woman he was having an affair with knew he had children. Uh, yeah. The idea that you wouldn't stop at, you know, at, at killing the wife in order to be able to move on with your life, to me, speaks to a very, very depraved, a very aberrant kind of thinking. In family annihilation cases, is there a threat? I mean, is there a reason why it has to be everyone in the family? Do you know? It's just, uh, I mean, there are different types of family annihilators. So some of them feel that they wouldn't cope without them. So mm. sometimes it's it's the family annihilators actually kill everybody and then kill themselves. Right. So actually they always knew that they're going to kill themselves. But in their head, they imagine their position within the family is so important that the family can't survive without them. So mm. therefore they need to bring everybody with them. That's one type of family annihilator. The, um, others, it's um, financial or they, they sometimes feel like the family has disappointed them. Mm. So if they aren't living up to this person's high expectations, that they then kill everybody for those reasons. There's there's just a lot of different reasons as to why the father might then kill everybody involved. Um, there are a range of a range of reasons. One of the things that was interesting to me was that Nicole, Chris's mistress, the woman with whom he was having the affair, and you know, to be fair to her, she was given the impression that he and his wife were either separating or separated. Um, mm-hmm. You know, this was clearly on him. But that she made the choice almost immediately to go to the authorities it was very interesting to me. What did you think about that, that she was sort of a, a real key to helping the police solve this case? I think she probably, like everybody else, saw him on the news report and people knew that it wasn't right. It didn't sound right. It wasn't adding up. She probably heard other people speculating as well and decided if this is what people think she needs to come forward I'm not. I'm not looking to blame her for what right, happened. So right I know, she, but she um, she had an affair. She's guilty of having an affair. Mm-hmm. Um, but I believe that as time went on, she she had a long phone call with him that evening on the Monday night that Shanann had gone missing and was asking him. Apparently, according, I mean, we'll never know because we didn't hear the phone call. But is asking him like what happened, and he he is he can be believable. You know, if 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 this is beyond the realms of possibility, and he's the nice guy, everyone has he gets away with so much early on, even the affair because he's the nice guy because you think he's not going to do anything. You know, he helps everybody out. You think he's going to be you give him the benefit of the doubt. Hmm. Well, these people do. The people that were close to him gave him the benefit of the doubt. I'm curious as to what you thought. You know, one of the most interesting aspects of the film is watching the police do their work, um, especially mm-hmm. in their interactions with Chris. It's very mm-hmm. clear to me as a viewer that even at the time of the polygraph exam, um, that the polygraph administrator is saying to him, you know, all of these placating things like, you know, if you didn't do this, obviously you wouldn't be sitting here agreeing to this polygraph test. You know, if you actually committed this crime, there's no way that you would be sitting here. So this is very good for you. And, you know, we're very comfortable with the idea that you didn't commit this crime. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here. It's kind of clear to me that he was a pretty strong suspect at that point. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, he takes the polygraph and does horribly on it. And, you know, we know just from knowing what we know about polygraphs that they're not admissible in a lot of courts. However, they can be an indicator and and an important investigative tool. What did you think of how the police used that polygraph and how they interacted with Chris in these interviews? 
I think the poly, like you said, you, you can't always rely on just them. It was so important that they had a confession as well. But for two days, he's just been acting as surprised and dumbfounded as everybody else. And he's obviously thinking if he's hidden them and there's no body, there's no crime. So he's just going to act. I think his, his motive the whole time was to act. Well, I don't know. I'm as confused as you are. And I'm, I'm just hypothesizing. Maybe somebody took her. Maybe she ran off. You know, I think at this point he's decided I'll stick with this story and they can't prove otherwise. But the polygraph and failing the polygraph was a way for them to turn up that we now know you're lying rather than to keep saying it doesn't seem you know they can't just keep saying to him we don't think you're telling the truth the polygraph is a good device for them to demonstrate that he needs to start telling the truth now because they know he's being deceitful it was also a really stunning moment when he asked to see his father and Mm -hmm. brings his father in and you know that's all on film and that's it's really something to watch the reaction of his father when his father realizes right there in that moment that his son did in fact murder his wife yeah, I think that that was something that did strike me really early on when I was um, researching the film. I haven't ever seen somebody on camera confessing to their parents that they're a killer. Um, these types of confessions are made to police officers and for them to have left the room and brought him in created, again, another moment that they, that could have happened in the car, you know, that could have happened at the house, that could have happened in private somewhere and then they walk into the police station and retell everything. But no, it happens on camera in the moment in this room. So it just felt like the one thing you don't want to see isn't on camera, but every other moment has been captured. And I think, uh, yeah, it's just incredible that um, so much phone calls, you know, um, him walking on his driveway, their doorbell cam. It's just incredible how much digital record there was of this crime. Mm. And to see this all happen and unfold in front of you is, uh, yeah, astonishing. It is astonishing. And it is astonishing, you know, the moment you are walked through what he actually did and and how it happened and how he ended up, you know, killing their two children, Bella and Celeste as well. It's heartbreaking. Um, Mm -hmm. How did you walk the line? I mean, it is very important to talk about the details of this story on the one hand, because it is what happened. and, And it is, I think, an important thing to document so people understand the impact that this crime had. But how did you decide to walk the line as a filmmaker into not crossing that, you know, sort of salacious line and and making it like we are titillated by, Mm -hmm. you know, the aspects of the murders themselves? Yeah, that was something we discussed a lot, actually, in the edit. First and foremost, the most important thing about using the confession was that you have to be left in no uncertain terms that Shanann did not do this. Mm. And I think when you hear that confession, you should know that her name is cleared from that moment on. He can't you can't ever think that maybe this the nice guy decided to take the rap for her. You know when you hear that confession he did this. That was mm-hmm. why it was important to include the confession. Um, we heard, obviously, all the confession and we've seen the reports. Um, there was a lot, even on our first cut, there was a lot of details left out. We didn't want, like you said, it, it wasn't to be um, sensationalist with the details. We just needed to know the sense that this was calculated, that this happened over a period of time, that he could have changed his mind there's a lot of description about him snapping or it was just heat in the moment and actually he is as far from heat of the moment and snapping as possible and I think those were the details we wanted and the fact that even hearing your daughter's voice say daddy no isn't enough to stop you um that that was what we needed to get but there was yeah there was plenty of details that we kept trimming out because they just weren't necessary it was it wasn't those weren't the points that we were trying to get across Jenny, your film American Murder is a true crime story at its heart. It is made in a very different way, as we talked about, than other true crime documentaries like it. What are you hoping that viewers will take away after watching this film? 
I think personally, I would like people to know that we've refocused the narrative, that we have made sure that people are focusing on who the perpetrator is, who lied from the beginning, and who's the innocent party. All she ever did was love this man and love her family. That's the story. It's a very simple story in that respect. Um, and that unfortunately, over time, with retelling and you know uh, people hypothesizing and looking into her videos to try to find motive with her behavior, it started to move further and further away from that that simple truth mm. um so that's what i wanted the film to do to be like the defining story this is the defining film on the watts murders and it's that we remind everybody who the monster is and who only loved their family i can say at the end of the day i've done everything in my heart and my soul that i could do to make my family's life better and to give my family what they deserve we're not promised tomorrow you know we're not promised anything. Oh my goodness. But to be able to enjoy our children oh. and every crazy moment. I love you, girl. I got the baby a hug. You wanna give the baby a hug? It can be super crazy, but I love them. Well, Jenny, I think you achieved that. I really, really enjoyed the film. Thank you so much for talking with me about it. Thanks for having me. That's it for this week's episode of You Can't Make This Up. Thanks again to director Jenny Popplewell. If you want to hear more of my takes on true crime and how we cover it in the media, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On. Each week on that show, we break down true crime documentaries, podcasts, and the latest in pop culture. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please subscribe to, rate, and review this show and share it with friends. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And stay tuned for our next episode, kicking off another six-part mini-season on Unsolved Mysteries, Volume 2. You Can't Make This Up is a production of Netflix. Our music is by Hansdale Sue. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>